1: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
2: I'm Catherine Brobeck.
1: And on this episode, we shall be covering two short stories from the Labors of Hercules collection. We wanted to take a moment, just a moment, because we do understand that many of you out there use this podcast as a means of comfort and diversion and distraction from the uh, cares of the world. And there are many of those cares right now, but uh, it would just honestly feel a little weird. Not to acknowledge the fact that these are really troubling times right now, especially here in the U.S. where both Catherine and I live.
2: You know, I think that a lot of you have been very sensitive online about a lot of stuff. And I follow a lot of your Twitter accounts. And I think a lot of you have incredibly thoughtful and considerate opinions
1: I mean, this is a situation that is far more complicated and quite honestly crucial to at least, I think, who we are as a country. There are obviously greater implications for this uh, even beyond the U.S. And we know a lot of you are listening beyond the U.S. So this is neither the time nor place to get into a greater discussion about it. If we were ever to do that, we would certainly want to bring in a lot of different voices Beyond ours.
2: Right. I like to think that in our little corner of the universe here, we try very hard to talk about you know, stuff like intersectionality and to take into account the differences in time and place that something is written. And, you know, as someone who I was born in Chicago and raised in Minnesota and live in Los Angeles. So all of these things are very personal to me right now in the U.S. And I understand that people are really in pain and we can all do better. We just can. and. It's not necessarily relevant to our topics, but I think that in our personal lives, we should all really take a moment to reflect about how we can do better each and every day to support our communities and to support um, our neighbors, um, regardless of, you know, race or
1: gender or creed. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we harp on constantly in this podcast is the notion of marginalization and what that does to people. And uh, how important that is. And I think it's something that we will continue to bring up because it is important. And believe it or not, we really do get at some of the issues that I think are particularly swirling around uh, right now, given what's going on in the news. We just do it in in our own very weird and specific way. So we shall continue to do that.
2: Yeah. And and we're going to try to not be preachy or try to give prescriptives to things that um, we don't really have expertise in.
1: Yeah, if we can ever be in any way a conduit, I think, for any of these connections that can be made among listeners or just any kind of communication, we are always more than willing to do that, be it a conversation that we're having directly with you or something that we can facilitate among other people. That's also why we constantly list in my droning voice at the end of every episode, all of our social media and, you know, and and ways to contact us. Because if you do want to reach out, we really do want to hear from you now more than ever.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, again, this goes for COVID. It goes for the current protest situation in the US. Find a way to back your neighbor up and be supportive.
1: So with all that said, let's jump right in to our first of two short stories that we're covering on this episode. Uh, we've got the Lernaean Hydra and the Arcadian Deer. So starting on the Lernaean Hydra, I'm just going to go ahead and give you some publication history here. The Lernaean Hydra was first published in serialized form in the U.S., not the U.K., mm. in September of 1939 in This Week magazine. It was then published in the U.K. in December of the same year, 1939, in The Strand. Podcast favorite friend, The Strand.
2: Absolutely. It's a the sketch mind you.
1: It's no, the sketch, by the way, when it was published in the U S it was published under the title invisible enemy, mm. a little bit more of an, uh, of an enigmatic and, and kind of evocative title than the Lernaean Hydra perhaps, but not super on point for the labors of Hercules. So let's stick with the Lernaean Hydra. It was of course, subsequently published in the labors of Hercules collection by Dodd Mead in the U S and Collins crime club in the UK. Uh, both of those collections came out in 1947. Catherine Robeck, who is our victim in this story?
2: Um, well, it's kind of ultimately multiple people, but only one person actually dies. And that is Mrs. Charles Oldfield. She's a bit of a, shall we say whiny invalid, who then actually dies. She seemingly has a gastric condition that has been ongoing, but it seems perhaps that she died of something worse, namely arsenic.
1: All right, so um, we've got a couple of suspects here. Uh, First up, of course, the victim's husband. That would be Dr. Charles Oldfield. He is the village physician who seemed somewhat tired of his wife and slightly more interested in our second suspect.
2: Miss Jean Moncrief, who is the dispenser in the village dispensary. And she's young and pretty, and she likes Dr. Oldfield, And post his widowing seems to possibly be on the path to marrying him.
1: I see a motive there. Very interesting. Mm. We also have a nurse Harrison, who is the hired nurse who took care of Mrs. Oldfield until she died, as well as Beatrice, who is a maid within the Oldfield house. All right. Before we get into the world as it appears to be, since these are the labors of Hercules, yes, we should tell
2: us, please go into full dork mode. Kemper. I am going
1: to, I am going to bring out my Dolaire's book of oh, Greek myths, which I know wonderful. so many of you enjoyed the first time that I, that I brought this out. I don't have the intro to go through, so this won't be as long of a story time as it was before. But, I'm a
2: little disappointed.
1: but yes so the next labor of hercules here is indeed the lernaean hydra and here's what the Dolares had to say about that in the swamps of lerna there lived a nine-headed hydra another of echidna's brood this monster was so poisonous that the fumes from its breath alone were enough to kill whatever came close to it heracles filled his enormous lungs with air held his breath and ran at the hydra swinging his club he knocked off its heads and one after the other they rolled to the ground but no sooner had he knocked off one head than a new one grew in its place he half turned around and let out enough air to call to his charioteer to bring a firebrand and sear the next then no new heads could sprout when Hera saw that heracles was winning over the hydra she sent a giant crab to pinch his heel With a mighty kick, Heracles sent the giant crab flying as he knocked off the last of the heads. Then he dipped his arrows in the hydra's blood, making them so poisonous that a mere scratch from them was deadly. And he returned to Mycenae. His second labor performed.
2: So basically what you're saying is that he went to Chuck E. Cheese and he played a game of whack-a-mole. (laughs)
1: well the fact that when you cut off one head a new one grows in its place is something that will be directly referenced in this story so let us say this is more of an allegorical hydra here in this story we did have you know an actual lion-like dog in our first story the Nemean lion but unfortunately there are no monsters in this short story other than people and as we all know, the best <laughs> monsters, of course, are people. So, of course. So that's A okay. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about the world as it appears to be in Christie's version of the Lernaean Hydra?
2: Dr. Oldfield, who we've mentioned, um, desperately shows up at Poirot's flat as a client, but he's not really willing to reveal very much. He's begging in a way for help, but he's too proud to actually tell Poirot all that is happening. So he explains that his wife died basically a year ago, but there are increasing rumors around the village and they won't stop. And they've affected his practice. He's the village doctor. He's losing patients and they have just become increasingly too much for him to stand. He doesn't know what to do. He can't stop them. And, you know, it's essentially that he killed his wife. And so Poirot asks him, you know, did you? (laughs) And he he, is horrified. And then he sort of still sits there. And then Poirot asks, who is your romantic interest? And that's like the straw that breaks Dr. Oldfield. He tries to leave. And Poirot tells him, you know, I will help you. But, you you know, you, you have to come clean with me. You have to actually sit here and tell me the truth.
1: Right. And this is where Poirot makes his analogy to Rumor. He says, Yes, Rumor is indeed the nine-headed hydra of lernaea which cannot be exterminated because as fast as one head is cropped off, two grow in its place. Right. And I love his analysis. It's a, dare I say, Marpelian analysis of village gossip, right, that he gives because, you know, the doctor essentially is like how dare you jump to this conclusion that there is another woman and this is what Poirot says. The village gossip, it is based always, always on the relations of the sexes. If a man poisons his wife in order to travel to the North Pole or to enjoy the peace of a bachelor existence it would not interest his fellow villagers for a minute. It is because they are convinced that the murder has been committed in order that the man may marry another woman that the talk grows and spreads. That is elemental psychology. Oh, and, Elementary, and Poir- my dear Hastings.
2: <laughs> yeah, except no Hastings, unfortunately. In Sadly. this. Only George. But Dr. Oldfield, you know, stops at the door and gets over being angry and turns around and comes back and agrees to be honest. And um, Poirot says that, okay, well, you tell me what's going on and I will help you. So what is going on, Kemper?
1: So... It turns out he is maybe a teensy weensy bit in love with Miss Jean Moncrieff, and has been for some time. His wife was, you know, an eternal invalid, uh, but he insists he didn't kill her. She just passed away um, and he agrees to let Poirot investigate. You know, Poirot, of course, gives his uh, usual warning that has become so familiar at this point that he shall seek out the truth. So even if the truth is not to Dr. Oldfield's liking, the truth is what he shall get. Right, because, you
2: know, it's possible, it's possible Mrs. G. Moncrief killed his wife. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I mean, then that is the suspicion that kind of runs through this entire story. Dr. Oldfield acquiesces. Poirot goes down to this charming little village to investigate. And he does so by spreading a huge amount of, yes, gossip that he is, one, from the home office and two, going to exhume the body of Mrs. Oldfield. And that makes all of the old village gossips want to talk to him. This really is quite a Miss Marple story, except that it's Poirot instead of Miss Marple. It's interesting.
2: I know. And it's like the worst thing is like the old gossips. They're almost giddy. With delight. You know, when he says that they're going to exhume the body, they're all like, oh my gosh, what a shame. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. <laughs> One of those old gossiping busybodies was an old Miss Leatheran, which made me think of Amy Leatheran, the narrator in Murder in Mesopotamia. So mm, I like to yeah. think that Amy Leatheran is retired and now just like a and gossiping. And it's like
2: wa- wandered into a Poirot story.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, Miss Leatheran's maid is, of course, named Gladys as well you know this is now the third the third maid named gladys in a Christie story just throwing that out there
2: but based on their gossip ultimately tracks down the two servants from the house one is nurse harrison who's you know a very attractive woman she's pushing 40 she'd been the longtime caretaker of mrs oldfield
1: I would love to just point out that she is described as, quote, a Madonna with big, sympathetic, dark eyes. Mm -hmm. Christy Christy compares her to a Madonna twice in that story. I feel like we haven't had that in a while, but that is totally one of Christy's favorite physical descriptions of a woman, that she looks like a Madonna.
2: Absolutely. And so Nurse Harrison's also very bright. She has, like, a very intelligent take on this. She... Um, manages to tell Poro that she'd overheard a conversation with Charles and Jean about Mrs. Oldfield not being long for this world, which may or may not have been true. She had been ill because of this gastritis or whatever, but it also kind of seemed like she was a malingerer versus being actually ill. So there was not a clear sign that she was actually going to die soon. And then also Beatrice, who's the, who's the maid in the house, supposedly overheard the same conversation. Nurse Harrison, you know, notes that Beatrice kind of denies about them. Beatrice... Lays in all of this other suspicion. Like she said that Jean was adding poison to the tea, basically. She doesn't say it outright, she implies it. But, you know, she's herself spreading all this gossip.
1: Yeah, but she does not corroborate Nurse Harrison's evidence about that conversation, though.
2: No, 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 no. Correct. She just provides other, like, oh, well, Jean was probably putting poison in the tea kind of gossip.
1: I have to say, I'm proud of myself and I I know it's always to be taken with a grain of salt because technically we're rereading all of these. So who knows whether these solutions just kind of linger in the subconscious for decades, (laughs) um, as I think they sometimes do, seriously. But when I read the physical description of Nurse Harrison... And then realized that she said she overheard a conversation no one else overheard. I was like, oh, so she did it. Sorry to spoil, guys, but it's a short story. We'll, we'll get there in, you know, a minute or two. Um, but I was very proud of myself.
2: Normally, you're so mad at me for guessing, Kemper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I normally don't even try to guess. This just came to me. I mean, I read it and I was like, oh, she's attractive. She looks like a Madonna. She said she overheard something no one else overheard.
2: I mean, yeah. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, Poirot tells Nurse Harrison that he's ordering an exhumation, which he does. He actually uh, makes good on that uh, threat slash promise that he makes when he uh, arrives at the village. And it turns out that, hey, guess what? Mrs. Oldfield was uh, pretty much saturated through and through with arsenic. And Nurse Harrison then at that point tells him that, you know, she saw Jean Moncrief swapping out. Powders from her face powder in the dispensary. It seems she was doing some, you know, switcheroo there with some potentially poisonous powders and, you know, an innocuous face powder. And the police subsequently find Jean Moncrief's compact in the back of a drawer and um, it just may be filled with a whole bunch of arsenic. So it's looking like Jean Moncrief is guilty at the end of the world as it appears to be. We've got, you know, A couple, a literal couple of clues to bridge us over into the world, as it actually is. Catherine, please do the honors on clue number one.
2: Mm, Our favorite favorite clue. Never, never underestimate the help, obviously. And the deduction is that, you know, you have three characters here who are kind of all the help. You have Jean in the dispensary. You have Beatrice, who's the maid. And you have Nurse Harrison, who's the nurse. And maybe all of them are lying.
1: Or at least their evidence should not be taken at face value. So there's a lot more going
2: on. And also, they're probably all observant in their own ways.
1: Yes, and just have their own agenda. Right. So let's not underestimate them. Let's let's focus on them, in fact, and think about what that may be. Uh, And along those lines, clue number two, never underestimate a love triangle. This would be where the fact that Nurse Harrison is described as, you know, not too old and rather physically attractive is significant especially in a short story there are a lot of single ladies here in this story cue beyonce
0: Uh, oh
1: that takes me back but uh you know it's not just Gene moncrief here nurse harrison is also a single lady. And, you know, we should uh, we should note that and uh, think about whether or not there may be a little love triangle going on here between those two single women and Dr. Oldfield in our story. Catherine Brobeck, take us home and resolve this thing.
2: Yeah, so Nurse Harrison did it. She was in love with Dr. Oldfield and she figured that his sort of malingering wife, who he clearly did not like anymore um but was not going to actually get rid of she kind of figured that if mrs oldfield were to die you know she had a really good rapport over a long period of time with dr oldfield and that she would be next in line until until jean jean caught dr oldfield's eye And so Nurse Harrison essentially decided to kill Mrs. Oldfield, which she'd kind of probably been doing for a long time. It's a little bit unclear. But she decided to kill her and then frame Jean for the murder.
1: The way that I interpreted it, it's that she killed Mrs. Oldfield because she thought that once Mrs. Oldfield was out of the picture, that the doctor would get together with her. But it wasn't until after she killed Mrs. Oldfield that she realized that the doctor had eyes for Jean Moncrief.
2: Right, which is why she frames Jean for the suggestions to Poirot and then through the compact, right?
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and we have some cold hard evidence here because Poirot has his faithful and resourceful Georges follow Nurse Harrison. And George actually sees her buy that compact and stuff it in Jean's drawer, the one that was found with all the arsenic in it. So we have proof oh, positive and- that she did it.
2: When we get a weird also twist in this is that Jean knew that Mrs. Oldfield was being poisoned. Jean Moncree said slowly, I have been terribly worried. You see, the arsenic in the poison cupboard didn't tally. Oldfield cried, Gene, you didn't think. No, no, not you. What I did think was that Mrs. Oldfield had somehow or other got a hold of it, and that she was taking it so as to make herself ill and got sympathy, and that she had inadvertently taken too much. But I was afraid that if there was an autopsy and arsenic was found, they would never consider that theory and would leap to the conclusion that you'd done it. That's why I never said anything about the missing arsenic. I even cooked the poison book.
1: Right. So she didn't think that dr oldfield did it but she thought that this pesky invalid was right. using it to make herself ill and she had inadvertently taken too much and then that, that this would ruin dr oldfield's life and presumably hers since she wants to marry him so yes i mean this goes to the fact that everyone has their own agenda here and is not exactly being truthful i suppose Beatrice, the maid, was the most truthful among the lot. I did find it curious that she was described as having adenoids or, you know, being adenoidal, which is also another tick of Christie's when it comes to the physical description of maids. They are always described as adenoidal. Have you ever noticed that?
2: I know. It's a little bit odd. It, why is no other character described like that?
1: And it's also one of those things that, like, I knew vaguely what adenoidal means. I know that it has something to do with sort of being nasally and sniffly, snuffly in your nose. Like, it means that your nose is kind of blocked. But just for the record, since it comes up so much in Christie, I went to the trouble of looking this up in Merriam-Webster. And adenoidal is exhibiting the characteristics such as snoring, mouth Breathing and voice nasality of one affected with abnormally enlarged adenoids. And adenoids themselves are either of two abnormally enlarged masses of lymphoid tissue at the back of the pharynx that usually obstruct the nasal and ear passages. So adenoids are enlarged lymph nodes which makes sense. So if you have adenoids, that means you already have the problem. And the problem is a blockage that makes your voice nasal. Pretty much what I thought it was, but you have a sinus
2: infection basically.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's this weird thing where I think sometimes there's a little bit of a tradition, maybe more in mid century American fiction of secretaries or even telephone operators being adenoidal also. Hello.
2: Have I reached the party to whom I am speaking? Is is this General Motors? Hi, General. How's everything (laughs) going again? Tell me, how's Mrs. Motors? Yeah, I mean, I've always wondered if it's because you're in an enclosed space with cigarette smoke.
1: Mm, Or even just like working indoors a lot.
2: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm somebody who has had sinus infections since I was a child. So I have some sympathy here.
1: Yeah, I don't really understand why maids are always adenoidal in Christy. You know, for someone who...
2: I mean, dust? Yeah.
1: It must have been something that she came across a lot in her own experience because, you know, for someone who's constantly cautioning her readers never to underestimate the help, it would seem to be a little bit of a wide brush let's say, that she's using to paint all of these various maids in the same way. But perhaps that actually, you know, is based on experience, especially from that time period. I don't yeah, know. It's a curiosity. I mean, it's, I, it's well, curiosity. No, I, mean
2: I, I do have to assume that if you're constantly around mountains of dust indoors, you're probably going to end up with allergies, right?
1: Yeah. I think it's a slight weakness that Nurse Harrison wouldn't realize that Dr. Oldfield was in love with Jean Moncrief until after his wife Has passed away, but that's a quibble. I I think you can work around that because maybe the situation was just not entirely clear to her until Mrs. Oldfield was out of the situation entirely. She thought that after the dust cleared, the doctor would just fall into her arms, and that didn't happen. You know, it's a neat little puzzle mystery.
2: Yeah, perfectly enjoyable read.
1: I didn't appreciate the, you know, we get a bit of a chauvinistic Poirot at the end when he is opining as to Nurse Harrison's character. Yes, she would have made probably a good wife and mother. Her emotions were just a little too strong for her. Uh,
2: the pity of it, he says.
1: Yes, the pity of it. And my last little point, there is a character in the story whose last name is Garcia, which I found interesting. You know, we don't normally come across a name like Garcia in Christie.
2: No, very rarely, actually.
1: I mean, you know, it's a name of Spanish extraction. It's not that it's not believable that there would be someone with the last name of Garcia living in England in the 30s and 40s. It's just that it's not typical for Christie. So I just thought it was worth pointing out. All right. Let us move along now to our next labor of Hercules. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history of the Arcadian Deer?
2: Yeah, it was uh, first published in, guess what, Kemper? The Strand. The Strand. In January of 1940, and then in the U.S., and again, this week, magazine in May 1940, under the title Vanishing Lady. Then again, of course, in that Labor of Hercules collection, as we previously discussed.
1: All right, well, this is not a murder mystery. This is a rare Poirot story which really falls pretty squarely in the thrillery hijinks corner of the universe, And also
2: a little bit the Papa Poirot corner of the universe, for sure.
1: Absolutely. I actually, and listeners will know that this is, at at this point, uh, this is a high compliment. This had a little bit of ode to Satterthwaite and Quinn.
2: Oh my gosh. It's it's so much that. Like, I read this story and was like, this is a mysterious Mr. Quinn story.
1: Yeah, it really is. It really it should have been a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. But I don't mind Poirot being in it. He doesn't feel out of place. It's just I would almost wager that Christie had conceived this story as a mysterious Mr. Quinn story and just never used it and then said, oh, right, I can shoehorn this into the labors of Hercules. Seriously.
2: It certainly reads like it. It reads way, way closer to a mysterious Mr. Quinn story. I mean, it, reading it, you just keep waiting for them to show up.
1: Yeah, and a lot of what Huaro is doing, his passive observation and appreciation of the arts, we'll get into it. Is Mr. Satterthwaite? I mean, he he seems like Mr. Satterthwaite.
2: He it has the same the story. It has the same setup as multiple Mr. Yeah. Quinn stories.
1: Yeah, but you know, like I said, that's high praise coming but coming we, from us. Today. I mean,
2: we 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 love those stories so.
1: Well, before we get into that, let me turn back to my beloved Book of Greek Myths here. The Arcadian Deer actually doesn't come next, at least in my book. I have to skip ahead a little bit to get to it. In this collection, it is actually the fifth labor, because this is how it begins. Eurystheus was distressed to see with what great ease Heracles had performed his first four labors. Now he sent him to bring back alive one of the sacred hinds of Artemis. He hoped that Heracles would harm the creature with his brute strength and thereby earn the wrath of the goddess. But Heracles pursued the swift deer with great patience over hills and dales. The year was almost over when at last he caught the deer. With great care, he carried it back to Mycenae. Not the most exciting of the labors as chronicled in Dolair's Book of Greek Myths.
2: Although it is a little bit actually what happens in the story, I suppose.
1: No, it it totally is. This is just an abject tangent, but I just learned recently and it really tickled me that, you know how obviously all of the moon missions in the 60s and 70s were named after Apollo? Right. Apparently the new series of moon missions that will be happening in like the next decade are going to be called Artemis.
2: Oh. Isn't
1: that cool? You know, they're brother, sister. I think that they were even twins. I think that's really cool. Something to look forward to.
2: There have been so few highlights, but I do have to say that the astronauts getting to the space station made me happy.
1: It really did. And I really apologize for this tangent. But part of the innovation of these SpaceX missions is that when they land, have you ever seen what it looks like when these shuttles land? Because they don't do what the old Apollo missions did. They don't just get thrown in the water. They actually come back down onto the ground vertically like an alien spaceship. It looks like an alien spaceship. It's so impressive. I encourage anyone who wants to geek out over that just to YouTube a video of like a SpaceX landing because I I was really impressed. In any case, Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us about the victim in Agatha Christie's version of the Arcadian Deer?
2: Well, there sort of isn't one, but perhaps it's Ted Williamson. And he's a Oh my gosh, Kemper. He's like a Greek god. Hubba hubba. Oh my gosh. He's like nobody's been more beautiful than him ever. Poirot is just looking at him thinking, oh my gosh, why are you in this random village? You could be like on Mount Olympus. I kept being reminded of, do you know in Cold Comfort Farm, especially in the movie, when you meet the Rufus... Sewell uh, character, Seth Starkadder. That's the cousin in Cold Comfort Farm. That's who right. I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Especially when the movie producers come out and they're like, why are you out here? You should be in the pictures. I just kept thinking that about Ted Williamson.
1: This is what Christy writes when Poirot first meets him. Here, he thought, was one of the handsomest specimens of humanity he had ever seen. A simple young man with the outward semblance of a Greek god. There's a lot of Poirot appreciating the beauty of Ted Williamson in this story. And that, too, is part of what feels a little Mr. Satterthwaite esque about this story, right? Because Mr. Satterthwaite is such an aesthete. He appreciates aesthetic beauty, and I could easily see Mr. Satterthwaite sitting perched on a log in a countryside surveying a beautiful man and thinking very hard about symmetry and proportion.
2: Oh, absolutely. He's a mechanic um, in the countryside and he requests Poirot's
1: help. We can breeze right through the, our list of suspects, because there aren't any, because this is not a murder mystery. You know, this is more of a a missing persons case, I guess we could say. Let's just get right into it in the world as it appears to be. Poirot's car breaks down in the countryside. Hmm. That doesn't sound familiar or like the beginning of at least one Mr. Satterthwaite story in The Mysterious Mr. Quinn. At
2: least two.
1: There's, at, I believe, at the Bells and Motley, for sure.
2: Correct. And then Um, it's the one that's at the crossroads.
1: And yeah, at the crossroads, they get into an accident. That's right. right. True. Lots of vehicular hijinks going on in the mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. So here we are. This time it's happening to Poirot. And he has to go to a terrible inn while he waits. And uh this is where Poirot of course meets this Adonis of a mechanic, Ted Williamson. And young Ted comes to give Poirot an update, only to recognize Poirot for who he is, and Ted hesitates. And Poirot, never one to ignore either a compliment or the hint of mystery, asks Ted what he wants, if you know, he has a problem that he needs solving. And Ted wants to know what happened to a young woman who he met in his neck of the woods and who he fell in love with, even though he really only spent half a day with her. Her name was Nita, N-I-T-A, and she just seems to have disappeared since that half a day that he spent with her. And she was the maid of a famous ballerina who was staying at a nearby estate.
2: Right. Katrina Samushanka.
1: Right, so as young Ted explains it, he lives near an estate called Grasslawn, which belongs to a Sir George Sanderfield. And Sir George uses it in the summertime for weekends and parties. Rather a gay lot he has down as a rule, actresses in that. Well, it was last June, and the wireless was out of order, and they sent me up to see to it. So Ted proceeds to tell Poirot the story in which Ted enters the estate at Grasslawn and Sir George is out on the river with all of his guests and apparently the cook and the manservant are also gone serving drinks and all of that so there is only this one girl in the house and this is what Ted says she was the lady's maid to one of the guests she let me in and showed me where the set was and stayed there while I was working on it and so we got to talking and all that Nita her name was so she told me and she was lady's maid to a Russian dancer who was staying there and these two ended up going for a walk on the river and it's very clear that Ted will Williamson was totally smitten by her. I'm quoting here again. She was just the loveliest thing you ever saw. Her hair was like gold. It went up each side like wings. And she had a gay kind of way of tripping along. I, I, well, I fell for her right away, sir. I'm not pretending anything else. So, of course, Papa Poro is activated here. And this Nita told Ted that she would be back in a fortnight, but she never showed up. And when he inquired as to the maid of this famous ballerina, he was met by a completely different woman who said, ah, yes, I'm the new maid. You must be talking about her former maid. So he asked for the former maid's address. But when he sent a letter to her, it was returned with no longer at this address written on it. So he has no idea where his beloved Nita is.
2: Poro decides to sort of take up this case because, again, this young man is gorgeous <laughs> and compelling in his love for this young woman.
1: He feels his Papo Paro sympathy for young lovers, especially yeah, he, lovers as beautiful as at least one half of this pair.
2: Right. And I think that he assumes that the girl must be as beautiful, right?
1: But of course. <laughs> but of
2: course. So, um, you know, it turns out there's a new maid and it's this marie alan and she ends up sort of directing poirot to north london and it's a little bit weird because all the descriptions of nita don't really line up she seems to sort of be like an intense italian you know he describes sort of this like angelic figure and by all the other accounts nita the maid is sort of this fiery italian
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ted Williamson describes his Nita as this, as you said, angelic, golden blonde woman. But there was a previous maid who, for the duration of this story, we're assuming is the Nita who Ted Williamson met. But the way that she's described, you know, she's described as this dark you know,
2: tempestuous Italian.
1: Tempestuous Italian. And Chrissy doesn't really shine a light on that. I mean, in a way, it's almost a clue. It's, it's a fairly clunky clue. But an astute reader is going to realize that something's not lining up here. Whoever Ted Williamson met does not seem to be the same woman who had been this ballerina's maid at the time that she was staying at this estate.
2: Right. And so Poro can't get a response from anybody. The previous maid seems to have disappeared from her North London apartment. Landlady doesn't know where she went. She thinks she went back to Pisa because that's where she thinks that the girl is from. And he can't get a response from the ballerina who apparently has disappeared from the stage and by all accounts is in Switzerland. And he can't get a response from her either.
1: The funny thing is that this story, even though it really has no puzzle in it, there's no murder that ever happens. This is just an unassuming mechanic who wants to find the woman that he fell in love with over the course of half a day. Poirot does more investigating. He does more interviews and goes to more countries than he does practically in any of the novels. So this is the (laughs) armchair detective being forced to travel halfway around the globe just because he is a big old softy and a romantic.
2: Well, and also he's not getting paid. No,
1: I know. Yeah. Poor Ted Williamson says, oh, you know, maybe I could scrounge together five or 10 pounds. And Paro just kind of waves that away like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 you know, he's he's doing this out of the kindness of his heart. You know, this. Doesn't really come as a surprise. We know how Papa Poirot feels about lovers, so it makes sense. It's just, it's played up for comedic effect here that he's zigzagging around London interviewing maids. And, you know, he, he goes from the maid Marie Hélène to Count Alexis Pavlovich. Then he goes to Pisa to look up this first maid, and then he has to go all the way to Switzerland, which he thinks of as, quote, the world's end, because he has to go not only to Switzerland, but to an extremely isolated parts of Switzerland, because this ballerina, Katrina Samushenka, is dying of consumption. Right. You know, other, otherwise known as tuberculosis. And uh, she really is in the middle of nowhere. And Poirot is now seemingly taking his life into his hands as <laughs> right. well by going to a TB ward to hunt her down.
2: Yeah, he's going to a sanitarium in the Alps. Yeah.
1: And we should note that in Pisa, I mean, he discovered that Nita, this first maid, was dead. But this is where he also gets confirmation that she is supposed to be dark eyed and dark haired and bad tempered. So he's going to Switzerland to this TV board to finally at long last figure out just what the heck is going on. So, Catherine, I think we have one clue here. And I think you... Have to be the one to <laughs> share it with us this once again, because this is this, this is just my your role. Clue.
2: My role in life.
1: This has become who you are, Catherine.
2: <laughs> never underestimate the help people. Say it again. Never underestimate the help because. Say it louder. Never underestimate the help because you do not know who they are.
1: <laughs> because they may not exist.
2: <laughs> they may not be at all who you think they are. Think that the next time somebody hands you a cup of coffee, make sure that it's not being poisoned. And the next time, like, you talk to a driver, make sure that it's not, you know, a lord slumming it. Because that is what happens in a lot of these. And guess what, Kemper? It is what is happening here, too.
1: Uh, Yes, it is, because when Poirot finally does gain entry to this uh, sanitarium and he meets Katrina, the ballerina, guess what, folks? She is golden haired and angelic. She is, of course, very frail and dying here in Switzerland. But uh, this woman... Seems to match the description of the beautiful, angelic, golden-haired maid who Ted Williamson fell in love with. So Poirot confronts her and he says, you know what? I don't think you had a maid when you were staying (laughs) with Sir George Sanderfield. I think you were between maids. You were between this Nita Valletta, who has since passed away in Pisa, or Bianca, as her family called her. You hadn't yet acquired Marie Helene. Who was apparently just a terrible maid.
2: Also, guess what Nita might be
1: short for? This is my favorite part. Yes, please do share.
2: Incognita?
1: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Like, sure, Agatha. Sure, Jan. If you must. Sometimes she just goes that extra half a step a little too far but you know what it's it's a little I cherish too, it a, when she does a little, it's a little too far <laughs> it's a little too far but it's all good yeah in other words the woman who uh, fell in love with Ted Williamson and he with her was Katrina Samushenka herself the prima ballerina extraordinaire. But because she was a world famous ballerina, she could not abide with falling in love with a mechanic. She just didn't think that their worlds could ever come together and she fled. And now she is content just to simply expire here and uh, remember the short time that she had with such a lovely man.
2: Yeah, except Papa Poirot has shown up and you know, you know where this is going to go.
1: Oh, yeah. And this again, this is such the ending of a mysterious Mr. Quinn. Oh, my
2: gosh. It's exactly like one. It's it's like shockingly like one, because what Poirot basically says to her, she's lying in a bed, dying of consumption. And he basically says to her, shut up, sit up. You can, like, recover from this. Stop it. And also, like, if you can't dance again, who cares? He makes a perfectly good income as a mechanic. You are in love with him. He's in love with you. And you will have absolutely incredibly beautiful children who will be dancers.
1: Right. And there's this whole notion that her father was a prince or a grand duke or even a general in old Russia. And Poirot says, let's get real here, Katrina. Was that really true? And then this is what Christie writes. She laughed suddenly. She said, he drove a lorry in Leningrad. And then Poirot says, very good. And why should you not be the wife of a garage hand in a country village and have children as beautiful as gods and with feet perhaps that will dance as you once danced? (laughs) Katrina caught her breath. But the whole idea is fantastic. Nevertheless, said Hercule Poirot with great self-satisfaction, I believe it is going to come true. The end of a mysterious Mr. Quinn story.
2: Absolutely it is.
1: That is our takeaway here. This is a discarded, mysterious Mr. Quinn. I don't even want to say it's shoehorned into the labors of Hercules because, you know. No, it kind
2: of fits because he takes the deer back.
1: Yeah, and this whole story really is Poirot pursuing his quarry. He is like a hunter who is pursuing his answer. So it's fitting that he should be trotting all over the globe and figuring out where this enigmatic woman is and finding this beautiful man, his long lost love. We did gloss over one of the early people, though, who Poirot meets as he's engaging in his questioning here of various people, because I just thought that this is interesting. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have a character like this in this story. He goes early on to meet Ambrose Vandel, who he seems like a gossipy gay man in the
2: story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he really does correct.
1: That's how he's written. Poirot goes to him because he's a designer for the ballet so he's just kind of in the mix among all these people so you know he knows the ballerinas, he knows their help, he just has a lot of information I mean this is just some interesting dialogue here because he's talking about Sir George Sanderfield who is the owner of the estate where Katrina was staying when Ted Williamson met her and he says, Sanderfield, George Sanderfield nasty fellow, rolling in money but they say he's a crook, dark horse affair with the dancer but of course, my dear. He had an affair with Katrina. Katrina Samushenko. You must have seen her. Oh, my dear. Too delicious. Lovely technique. The Swan of Tulalela. You must have seen that. My decor. And that other thing of Debussy. Or is it Manine La Biche au Bois? Oh, she danced it with Michel Novian. He's so marvelous, isn't he? I mean, yes, I'm playing it up a little bit, but not much. There is a lot of ital- uh, italics in that you're paragraph.
2: It, you're playing it up a little bit, but
1: it's we- pretty flamboyant. No,
2: it, it it is. This whole story is like a little, again, it's why it seems a little bit more like it should be Sad Earth weight in this.
1: Yeah, because I, you know, we've made this point before, but there's a lot of overlap with all of Christie's quote unquote detectives or detective like characters in that, again, they tend to exist on the margins of society and they're overlooked, but for different reasons, right? Poirot is overlooked because he's a foreigner and people, you know, either think of him as less than or at least so different that they can tell him things they won't tell other people. Miss Marple exists at the margins because she's an old unmarried woman. You know, she's one of the quote unquote surplus women. So people feel like they can, disregard her. And Mr. Satterthwaite, interestingly, is rich and he is always in the center of things and he's a patron of the arts. But and Christie, you know, especially in the early stories, always make this point. He has this kind of womanish aspect to his personality. You know, for Christie, he's a little gender bending. And there is often a little bit of this Somewhat effeminate quality to him, which is why it's easy to see him in this story admiring the physicality of Ted Williamson and interacting with this designer for the ballet and going all over the world for the sake of two lovers. I think it's just why this story does seem to be preoccupied with those themes and to feature some characters and a focus that's slightly different, certainly for a Poirot story, but one that we have seen. And some of the Quinn Satterthwaite stories. And given that Poirot is on the margins, it's not that it doesn't fit. It's just that it does feel a little different from what we're used to seeing Poirot do. And the part of the world that we're used to seeing Poirot function in as a detective. You know, the good news is that we have a lot more of these labors of Hercules to go. Yeah,
2: I mean, I actually, I, I kind of like this story. I like both of these stories,
1: actually. I do too. I mean, again, there's a lightness of touch. To these stories, and I believe that that is going to be consistent through the collection that makes them particularly easy to read for Christy and yet we tend to be able to have our cake and eat it too because most of the stories are miniature puzzle mysteries but even in one such as The Arcadian Deer which is not there's certainly a lot on offer so yeah, the story a, is by no means lacking.
2: No, no, no. It's, it's only that these are one after another in the collection and the Lernaean Hydra is very much a Poirot story and again as we now repeat. Said the Arcadian Deer just really seems like Paro is slotted in for Mr. Satterthwaite. Um, that does not make it not worth reading.
1: No, in fact, it makes it that much more fascinating.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Well, that is the Lernaean Hydra and the Arcadian Deer. We have many more of the labors of Hercules to come. But next episode, we will be covering a novel. Catherine Brobeck, what are we covering?
2: We're discussing a little something called... Destination Unknown, which I have to say, sounds a little bit like one of those travel channel specials where you renovate a abandoned hotel.
1: It definitely sounds like it could be on Nat Geo or Discovery, Mm, yeah, even the Home Improvement Network, yeah, (laughs) or something, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Destination Unknown, yes, one of Christie's outlier thriller novels. This is a standalone thriller mystery. And we are very excited to discuss it. So that will be next time. And before then, as we mentioned up top, we really would love to hear from anyone who wants to reach out. So feel free to contact us, first of all, on our Patreon site. We just put up a fresh episode about two wonderful films, Kind Hearts and Coronets, and Murder by the Book, which is a UK television film featuring Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot as characters. And we had so much fun watching that and then discussing it. So if you would like to check out some additional content, head over to www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at allaboutagatha. Our Twitter handle is at allaboutthedame. Catherine's is at brobcat. And our Instagram handle is at all about Agatha. We so appreciate the ratings and reviews that have come in. Please keep them coming. We love hearing from you that way as well. And we'll see you next time. Bye.
2: Bye.